Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today Robert Baines of the NATO Association of Canada talks about sanctions against Russia and what more Canada can do to show support for Ukraine. The Globe and Mail's health reporter Carly Weeks has a look at why so many Canadian kids are not fully vaccinated. Professor Marvin Washington from Portland State reassures us the Vancouver Canadians will play baseball at Nat Bailey Stadium this season, even if Major League Baseball is delayed. And Tourism Industry CEO Walt Judas has a look at new money from Victoria for tourism and where it is most needed. So let's get started. As we turn our attention to the Canadian position uh, vis-a-vis the Russian aggression in Ukraine, the Prime Minister of Canada has made a couple of statements lately with respect to sanctions to be imposed not only on the Russian state, but also on the Russian president and certain members of his uh, uh, elite group of oligarch friends. But what more should Canada be doing? For that, we turn to Robert Baines, the president and CEO of the NATO Association of Canada, joining us from Toronto this morning. Mr. Baines, Robert, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us. Uh, the Prime Minister talking, as I mentioned, about sanctions uh, with respect to Mr. Uh, Putin and uh, the Soviet Foreign Minister Lavrov and some of his uh, oligarch friends that are essentially running the show uh, in tandem with Putin. Uh, from the point of view of tamping down the power uh, in Russia, are those sanctions, not just by Canada, of course, Robert, but by the West, what effect will they have? Well, I think it's important, Sterling, to recognize nobody ever thought that these sanctions would have immediate effect. Uh, Most of these sanctions have been on the table for a long time. Mr. Putin has been quite well aware of them. Uh, I think that the, the latter part of your question about his cronies that's the interesting point, because that, that is something that was added only in the last few weeks. Uh, the United Kingdom is especially strong uh, on that point, and uh, that might have a, a bit more of a bite than Mr. Putin was expecting, and certainly his oligarchic or kleptocratic uh, friends were thinking uh, would be happening. And so the, the, the key is that we've got a bunch of, you know, 50, 100 people around Mr. Putin who are, really are helping him to run the show. Sure. If they are no longer allowed to enjoy the wealth and riches that those positions have granted them, uh, they're no longer allowed to go to London and enjoy their, uh, basically, their palaces there. Um, mm. What the hell's what, what's the point for them if, uh, if they can't enjoy the fruits of their position? So they could put... Uh, collectively, a significant strain on Mr. Putin and and his uh, uh, range of action uh, available it, to him. Interestingly, Robert, the Premier of British Columbia made that point yesterday because you know we're we're sitting here on, on the west coast of Canada, go, wringing our hands and going, "Gosh, what can we do?" Well, the Premier Horgan yesterday pointed out that, uh, with regret, uh, British Columbia is a fairly well known money laundering jurisdiction, and why don't we start doing a title search on some of these uh, expensive properties that have been purchased in the province? in the last five or ten years, many of whom, uh, many of which may in fact be connected directly to some of Putin's pals, and then we can apply a British Columbia bit of pressure to all of this. So it kind of made us feel better, but it also gave us a sense of, of, of actual, tangible, something we can do. Robert, how impervious is Putin from all of this? You've already mentioned he's known this stuff has been coming for quite a while. So obviously he's had time to rearrange his circumstances so that he's not going to personally be bothered by this. 
how immune, in fact, do you think he is? Well, uh, I think it bears reiteration. Uh, he has known for a long time. I, have, I do not have the actual numbers on how much he has salted away. But uh, the key is that it, it doesn't matter. He is one man. Uh, he is dependent on many other people. Uh, and if, if, I mean, if he's got enough to actually pay off his cronies in you know, return for all of this uh, expropriated uh, you know, cars and houses and the, the freedom to travel, don't forget yep. that. A lot of Russian oligarchs love going all over the place. And if they're only, you know, relegated to Iran and North Korea, that's not the best thing for them. So uh, and, and their families, uh, they are also being uh, put on this list in some cases. It's uh, it's it, it is very impactful. These are real personal human costs, not just cold, hard cash. I wonder also, as uh, you know, in terms of the ability of the world, Robert, to see what's going on with the onset of social media and the the instant global communication capability we all now have as close as our phones. I wonder how much of this sustained aggression is going to be possible, given the the coverage that it's getting worldwide and just in terms of global pressure enough already. Do you, do you see that as a force at all? You've, you've hit it uh, bang on the head, uh, Sterling. It's, it's a, it's an interesting new element. Um, We've fought for so long, uh, the first world war, the second world war to try to end this cycle of uh, attacking uh, of war. Uh, We made war illegal after the second world war through the United Nations Mm-hmm. The rules-based international order was built up to maintain peace and security. Uh, obviously, that hasn't stamped out all uh, fighting everywhere, but it's done an amazing job compared to the rest of human history. And, and so we've made aggression of this sort illegal. You cannot change borders by force. We right. do not allow that anymore. So the fact that Mr. Putin has just been so blatant about it, and as you say, social media has exposed uh, explored that so well. Uh, I think that the uh, the Russian actions at the UN, if, uh, if your listeners have not Googled that, that meeting, the Security Council meeting, uh, the Russians are just stonewalling any attempt by the United Nations to help get involved. Uh, so that kind of action and the clear aggression um, starts bringing back memories of, of thuggery and that, that kind of pariah status that uh, was used in the Second World War, uh, rightly, uh, against those who are, are really being belligerent. Now, we've talked, uh, you're, you're the CEO of the NATO Association of Canada, Mr. Bain. So in terms of Canada's commitment to NATO, most Canadians are aware of the fact that the government of Canada has allowed our military to really not stay at international world-class global standards. I mean, some of our soldiers are still carrying World War II pistols, for crying out loud. So what realistically, Robert, can Canada do in terms of pitching in uh, and pulling our share of the weight? Well, uh, a lot of things have already been done. Uh, the, the best thing we can do is, is send troops and our, our ships, which has uh, been done so far and will probably be increased. Uh, we've sent two of our warships, HMCS Montreal and HMCS Halifax, uh, right. over there. Uh, we will shortly have uh, just above 1,000 troops in Latvia and, uh, and in the surrounding area as part of uh, Operation uh, Resolute Support and uh, Operation Reassurance. Uh, more of that, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Our our air capacity is, uh, as you mentioned, a little less 
uh, you know, uh, up to snuff, if you will. Um, mm. and, and this is a constant challenge with Canada. We are so insulated from the world, or at least think we are, that most Canadians don't give a second thought about security. Uh, our organization is trying to raise awareness of the importance of security, that it's not a nice-to-have. It's something that is the foundation of the flourishing of our culture and the enjoyment of our peace. So many people died in the Second World War uh, that we honor every November the 11th um, to create this world, but it's not something you just build and then forget about. You need to maintain it through strength. NATO is all about peace through strength because we learned that lesson in the Second World War and we're not going to let it happen again. The fact that Mr. Putin has gone into Ukraine in this aggressive manner is an affront to all of those who died in the Second World War. And although it may take a little longer than we'd like, he will be punished for it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very interesting that he the premise for the invasion is he was concerned that Ukraine might at some future date be invited into joining NATO, which has been a subject of much conversation for, for years. But it's never happened. It's a pretty flimsy excuse. And yet, because uh, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, it is, it doesn't, it's not going to be able to receive the same degree of protection as, for example, Latvia would have. Correct. Yeah, it's a, it is a great challenge and made all the more complex by Mr. Putin throwing around words like, if you intervene, you will see things you have never seen before, which a, a right. lot of people have interpreted as a possible nuclear response by Indeed. tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, that is not something that, uh, you know, we have to tread very carefully here. But uh, NATO has made it very clear that the moment one foot steps over NATO territory, the full might of the NATO treaty, which is an attack against one, is an attack against all. Sure. That will be in effect immediately. And do you think that uh, we're hearing more and more about Canadian readiness now being ramped up at a fairly uh, accelerated pace? You expect that pace to be maintained for some time? Yes. I mean, I'd I'd hope it would be. Uh, Again, this isn't uh, warmongering. Uh, or scaremongering here. We are just trying to make sure that we are doing our bit. Um, The the world takes a lot of collaboration. That's what we've built over the past 75 years. And so Canada needs to shoulder some of that burden to help maintain security. uh, If we are insecure in one point in the world, it's much more likely that that insecurity will spread. Uh, And if, if, for instance, Ukraine, uh, you know, encounters more trials and tribulations. Uh, If Mr. Putin does get the upper hand for for a little while, that will embolden others to test and to prod. Um, And we need to be just so clear. We need to make sure that he is a pariah, that uh, uh, he is treated as an outlier. Um, That is the only way we're going to really make it clear that this action is no longer acceptable in the world since the end of the Second World War. It's just not done. Absolutely. Robert Baines, a pleasure to have you aboard this morning, sir. We do appreciate your time and your uh, your opinions. Thanks very much, Robert. Thank you. Uh, reading the Globe and Mail the other day came across this story containing this sentence. Across the country, 92% of people 18 and older have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. But For kids 5 to 11, 
the average is only 61%, according to the Public Health Agency of Canada. And that average only tells part of the story. The story is, why are so many Canadian kids unvaccinated against COVID-19, despite ample vaccine supply and appointments. The story in the Globe and Mail, written by their health reporter, Carly Weeks. Carly joins us now from Toronto. Good morning, Carly. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, what uh, what prompted you to do this story? What was the what was the impetus that uh, did, ha- caused you to take a look at the the high number of moms and dads versus the relatively speaking much lower number for their children? Mm-hmm. Well, it was kind of exactly that point. You know, we knew that a lot of people were getting themselves vaccinated, but that there appeared to be more hesitation when it came to kids. And yeah. we wanted to see if that was really playing out. You know, we'd heard before the vaccine was approved that parents were feeling a little skittish, and we really wanted to take a look at what was going on on the ground. Right. And because um, I've heard that just anecdotally, Carly, just in conversation mm-hmm. with parents who who are fully vaxxed and proud of it. But, you know, and how about the kids? Well, we're not sure that the hesitation was instant. And I, I was struck mm-hmm. by that, because if you've gone through all done the homework and got a vax yourself, what's what's the what's the where's the gap, Carly? Tell us about that big gap between so many vaccinated parents and a relatively speaking, much smaller number of children. Mm-hmm. You know, parents tend to hesitate when it comes to their kids. They're, they just have sort of a different uh, risk assessment that they give to their kids. And it seems right. that in this case, I think that there's a combination of things. There was those feelings of nervousness um, and also a not very good rollout in terms of the communications and enthusiasm about kids getting vaccinated and really accessible answers about why vaccines are good for this age group. Um, Parents have heard all throughout the pandemic that kids are not really at risk. So they're saying, well, why would I bother getting my kid vaccinated then if, you know, the risks are low and this vaccine is new and no one seems that enthusiastic about it. So I think there was sort of a a bit of a failure from a communications perspective on a number of fronts, uh, combined with that overall feeling that parents have of wanting to protect their kids and not being sure what to do. Sure. Now, let me just pick up on the sentence from your article, Carly, that I quoted uh, about the uh, the fact that 92% of 18-plus Canadians have had at least one dose, but that number is only 61% when it comes to kids. Uh, and, and you said in, in your piece, that average only tells part of the story, and I'm going on now, as some high-income areas in Canada are reporting upwards of 90% of kids being vaccinated, while other areas, notably lower income income racialized communities as well as remote and rural ones have rates well below 50 percent flesh that one out for us carly please because there's the gap right there isn't it it's it's a huge part of it and and that's uh, the story that we've heard throughout the pandemic right some of these harder hit communities um you know they're lower income racialized a whole bunch of factors that come together and and these are populations that are made more vulnerable and so um from the work that i did you know, we, we already know that a lot of these communities um, tend to struggle with vaccination rates. And it's not because they don't believe in vaccines. There might be a historical mistrust of the medical community for very mm-hmm. good reason. You know, people who've been um, subject to discrimination or prejudice, um, a language barrier. So if you can't understand the language, um, you know, that if you don't speak English or French very well and, you know, you're not getting good communication, you you might hold back. Um, and a lot of misinformation has been filling in those gaps. So I was talking to some outreach workers who were saying, you know, people 
throughout Canada are being inundated and in some cases even targeted with misinformation that's solely designed to get them to hesitate to vaccinate their kids. And so they're holding back for that reason as well. Um, you know, there's also elements of, of politics that comes in here with, you know, people kind of saying, I don't want the government telling me what to do. And so we see some sure. of that playing out in some of some provinces, too. Yeah, you talked to Dr. Matt Strauss, uh, Carly, who's a good friend of this program. Matt was on with us a couple of weeks ago from Haldeman, Norfolk, talking about the 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 difference, the urban-rural divide, and and mentioned that that that, that is uh, it's a reality in Canada, uh, that and and politics plays into it. But there's more to it than just that, isn't there? It's a more complex story, definitely, yes. Uh, yeah, and uh, I talked to Dr. Strauss for this piece as well. And and there's sort of an interesting story there just in how the national communications about getting kids vaccinated from very early on was a little bit more lukewarm, saying, you know, you may want to get these kids vaccinated. And and people like Dr. Strauss sort of said, well, then that, that doesn't really sound like a wholehearted endorsement. I'm not necessarily going to go out and tell everyone in my community, go and get vaccinated if the country's national task force is kind of sending lukewarm messaging. Now, things have kind of, they've strengthened their message since then. But I think that's part of the problem was that the early messaging uh, from the top was not very enthusiastic. And then when you speak to some people in some more rural areas, there definitely are some elements of, um, you know, people feeling that I'm living in a spread out area, not a dense urban center. I'm Mm -hmm. more protected. And again, some of these feelings about not wanting anyone to tell them what to do, whether it's government or a health official. Um, and then you combine that with some other maybe cultural or religious factors. Um, for instance, some Mennonite communities in that area. Um, and I talked to some people who were kind of in neighbors of Haldeman, Norfolk, and they're working specifically to kind of address some of the concerns that Mennonite populations have. One interesting anecdote that didn't make it into the story is that they're setting up clinics in some Mennonite areas that are very private so that, you know, you're not, if you want to get vaccinated, your friends and neighbors aren't going to know about it. And they're not going sure. to raise their eyebrows and say, hey, you see, so-and-so got his vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so the, the person I spoke to said husbands and wives are getting vaccinated without telling the other. Um, yeah. so, you know, in, yeah. So innovative strategies to reach people um, and their particular concerns. Carly, after all the homework you did putting this story together, are you optimistic that that number is going to increase? You know, when I, it's interesting you ask that. When I started doing this story yeah, early in the year, the rate was, I think, for 5 to 11-year-olds' first dose uh, was still under 50%. And we've seen it kind of creep up slowly. So I do think that there is a very slow and steady increase. But, you know, we know that to have um, really good protection, you know, you're going to have to have rates that are, you know, 80% plus, 90% plus. So I think that it will be an uphill battle. There's people who just will choose not to get vaccinated. You know, they're, they've um, gotten exemptions for their kids for a whole host of other childhood vaccinations. So sure. you're never going to reach everybody. Um, there, there's a lot of good people in this country doing some really great work on the ground to help give good information to people. And that makes me optimistic. Indeed. Carly, good work. Much appreciated. I recommend the article to uh, our listeners uh, here in Vancouver. Why are so many Canadian kids unvaccinated against COVID-19? Carly Weeks, the Globe and Mail health reporter, wrote the story just a few days ago. Carly, thanks so much for joining us this weekend. Very important um, uh, interview to do. My pleasure. Thank you so much. (music) 
the Sports Corner happens a little earlier today than usual on CKNW Saturday. Marvin Washington is back with us. Mr. Washington is a professor of sports management at Portland State University, here to talk to us this morning about the possibility of baseball. Because, of course, we're in the middle of a lockout, no resolution announced at all this week after a number of get-togethers between the players and the owners. There's a deadline looming large. What's next? Marvin Washington in Portland. Good morning, sir, and welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to have you back with us, Marvin. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the issues that keep the owners and players from doing a deal. What are the main bones of contention this time around? Yeah, the, the basic issue, which is why both sides are entrenched, is boiling down to flat-out just money. And I brought down a couple of stats because it's hard not for the players to compare themselves to players in other leagues. Okay. So if I'm a baseball player, I'm thinking about what do basketball players make? What do football players make? What do hockey players make? Sure. And here are some shocking numbers. The minimum salary. So what's the least amount of money you make? Hockey, 750000 Baseball, 570000 Hmm. 35% of the baseball players make less than $600,000. So we see these, you know, $300 million contracts. Sure. But the truth is the actual team payroll has not gone up nearly as much. So in the last 10 years or so, the team payroll has only gone up 20%. Football, basketball, 80 90%. Sure. And so the Baseball Players Association is saying there is no way you're not making money owners because the football owners are making money, the basketball owners are making money, the hockey owners are making money, we think you're making money, we want a bigger cut of the money. What okay, are the so owners Marvin, saying? We're not okay, making so any money. Okay, so now, what do they want? If, if, uh, if the average baseball player minimum wage is $200,000 lower than the average hockey player's mm-hmm. minimum wage, mm-hmm. is that what they want? Do baseball players want an automatic $200,000 raise for everyone who's on minimum wage? No, they're debating in some sense, is it going to be 670 Is it 610 which is what the owners? Do we go up $10,000 a year? Do we go up $20,000 a year? What they also want, and it's a great phrase, I love it, they call it a competitive balance tax. So it's a, uh, it's a uh, cap in hockey. It's a uh, luxury tax in basketball. Right, right now it's at $210 uh, million. So that's the how much your team has to give in salaries before they pay extra. So no surprise, a lot of the small market teams only pay that much. Sure. The players want them moved up to 240 Because they're saying, basically, we should allow owners to pay more money for players before they're taxed higher on that. That's a big sticking point because, no surprise, I'm an owner. I can't pay the players more because I'm not going over the, the competitive balance tax. The players are like, well, you control that tax line. Just raise the tax line up. Again, these are uh, uh, entrenched in the sense of, you know, my mom used to say, don't mess with my money. In a sense, that's basically what the debate is over, is whether or not the owners are saying we have no money and the players are saying, I'm pretty sure you have money because your revenue is going up, television is going up. I can't imagine you don't have money for us. On the, and it's an interesting perspective because it feels like the elite players 
are supporting the rookie players. Whereas a lot of times these things fall apart because there's mm. a divide amongst the players. The elite players have a different set of issues. I'm making $30 million a year sure. versus the, the least players who are making 600000 You would imagine they'd have different issues. It feels like from the baseball player side, they're both on the same side of this. Interesting stuff. Now, Marvin, we, of course, got the Seattle Mariners down I-5, a two-hour drive mm-hmm. from Vancouver. But more importantly, we have our Vancouver Canadians, and they're doing television and radio ads right now for mm-hmm. season's tickets. And for the first time ever, this uh, franchise is, of course, an affiliate of the Toronto Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. And they're for they're having their first ever season at what is referred to as High A. Uh, typically, they've been uh, maybe 50, 60 games a season. This year, they're going to play 142. They're trying to sell season tickets for 71 home games at Nat Bailey Stadium here in downtown Vancouver. So how likely... Is there to be a baseball season, not only down the road in Seattle for the Mariners, but right in our own backyard at Nat Bailey Stadium this year? Yeah, so I'll start local. This is the one that even I was surprised by. The major league lockout has no impact on the minor leagues. Aha. Uh-huh. And so when you go back to the, the work stoppage in 94, the minor leagues kept playing. And so the minor leagues can keep playing independent of what happens in the major league. I was surprised at that. I actually looked at a bunch of different sources to make sure I wasn't making that up. So right. they'll play. Okay. There, there is this growing suspicion. And, well, before I get to the growing suspicion, the thing to keep in mind in this specific case, it's a lockout. It's not a strike. Right. And so the owners could on Monday literally unlock the gates and start baseball. And they could keep negotiating with the season. So this isn't the same as a strike when the players are saying we're not coming to the field until you meet our demands. The owners have said, we don't want you in the field. Right. So the owners could open up the doors again. Uh, it's an interesting uh, issue. And if I wanted to play sort of like, uh, this has nothing to do with everything I just said, and this is just an owner's play, here's what the owner's play is. No one likes baseball in April. It's cold. The kids are still in school. Uh, maybe we have the lingering effects of COVID, so we're still not uh. sure. Can we go 100%? Can we go 50%? Do we have to wear a mask or not wear a mask? Can I serve right. food or not serve food? All these questions I hope will be solved by May. So what's the rush to play crappy baseball in April? I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. Trust me. Baseball in April in Chicago is crappy. Right. It's cold. It's windy. No one wants to go. They have day games. So maybe the owners are saying, you know, we can wait and – now, the players are saying, we're not going to do what you want for playoffs if we don't get a full season. Sure. The owners are saying, those two are two separate things. The players are saying, and the owners might be thinking, we can get a full season even if we start in May with just double headers. In June, in July, in sure. August, when it's nice outside, when the weather is great. So this feels like... Uh, I understand all the hard dates about the full season and the sure. hard dates about spring training, but can, will we play in September? Definitely. Will we get uh-huh. 162 games in? That's a question mark. I don't think every day we miss will be one less game because I think the owners and the players will agree to some sense of a doubleheader schedule because, you know, smartly so, fans will come and watch two baseball games in August in July, 
more than they'll watch one baseball game in cold, April. rainy April. No question about yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, so you're so you're 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 somewhat optimistic there will be some kind of season followed by yeah. uh, the playoffs. And the best yeah. news for Vancouver Canadians, local baseball yeah. fans, Marvin, is that the C's, mm-hmm. as we know them here, are going to play whether the Jays play or not. Yep, and that's true. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. Exactly. Yeah. Great to have you back with us. Such a good news story, at least for local baseball fans, and we'll keep our fingers crossed for the Mariners. Marvin, thanks yeah. for this. Excellent. No problem. Thanks for bringing me back. I really enjoyed this. It is uh, time to take a look at tourism in B.C. The government in its new budget earmarked another $25 million of new money for the tourism sector in the 22-23 fiscal year. Our next guest says that $25 million is in addition to the $50 million earmarked for tourism in the current fiscal year, which ends March 31st. So let's find out where all that money is going to go and where some of it has already gone. Walt Judas is with us. Mr. Judas is is the uh, CEO of the Tourism Industry of BC. Walt, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Nice to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us. And Walt, for a change, we get to talk a kind of a good news story. You and I, for the last couple of years, have been talking about how a, a, an industry on its knees has been trying to cobble survival together. And here we are at what is one can only hope, approaching the end of these restrictive measures and all the rest of it, and some new money to try and revitalize an industry that needs an awful lot of help. So what's going to happen with this $25 million on top of the 50 already committed? Well, let's look at the 50 first, because that was from the 2021 fiscal budget, and much of that has already been accounted for. Most recently, the province uh, offered some of those monies for the meetings and events industry to try to incent new clients and and, uh, generate some of the business for that sector, which is, as you know, we've talked about this, it's effectively been shut down for the last couple of years. There was also some money within this last tranche that was uh, provided for some workforce initiatives to try to find new workers for our industry or retain the existing ones, provide some training opportunities, etc. So there's some monies committed there. And now with this new $25 million, it's really a continuation, or at least some of it is a continuation of what's already been announced. Mm-hmm. But furthermore, there are some destination development initiatives around the province that the province wishes to undertake within the regions to ensure that uh, we're building back in our industry what is needed for uh, recovery. Yeah, Walt, and again, based on the conversations you and I have been having for the last couple of years, this is an industry that has really been all but shredded for the last couple of years. Where is the money needed the most? What part of the tourism industry in British Columbia is really hurting the most, if such a thing can be defined? Yeah, it's uh, that's very hard to define because there are so many that are hurting. As we've talked about, you referenced um The sectors like meetings and events that uh, I just alluded to, but also the cruise sector, there are many jobs associated with cruise that have been effectively idle. Even the suppliers that help the cruise industry have been uh, deeply affected. Then you look at the adventure tourism sector. Many of them, the hunting guides, the fishing lodges, the backcountry lodges, they rely predominantly on international visitation the river rafting guides, and the list goes on and on. 
they haven't had a lot of international visitors over the past couple of years. They're still reeling. In fact, I know many of them took another job just to make ends meet. Sure. If they are able to regenerate and start their businesses back up again, they're going to need some help. They have gotten some help, to be sure, but they'll likely need more. And look, let's face it, given the losses in the industry the past couple of years, there's probably no amount of money that uh, that you could add to a budget that would make up for that. Right. Having said that, though, there are still pockets around the province, even large operators. Some of the hoteliers who didn't receive any support federally or provincially, they're reeling. They're trying to build back up to the level of clientele they had prior to the pandemic. That's going to take a while. There's still barriers in place, as you know, including the testing requirements for international guests right. that prevent volumes of people coming back to Canada. When other countries are opening up, we still have some of those limitations. And so it's going to take a while to get past that and to begin to attract people once again. Yeah, well, once we finally get over that hurdle, to clear the final hurdle in terms of inconveniencing visitors coming into Canada, some of our advertising, you talked about international tourism and how really, uh, how dependent our tourism industry is on international visitors, not just the next door neighbors from America, but from around the planet. So when you focus your advertising campaigns to revitalize BC's tourism industry internationally, where's most of the money going to be targeted? Well, you talked about the United States, and and, uh, certainly there is an effort there because that is our largest international market and always Mm -hmm. has been and likely will be. But there are lots of places in Europe that uh, we, as a province, aggressively market in, places like Germany and the UK, Australia is a big market. We have um, obviously the Asian countries, including China, Japan, much less so than it used to be, but still a pretty healthy market for us. India is an emerging market. So mm-hmm. there, there are plenty of places. It's probably eight or 10 or 12 of kind of the core countries that Canada markets in. And British Columbia oftentimes follows that lead. But there's also a segment that um, I've talked about already, and that's the meeting side. Vancouver, in particular, is a very popular meetings destination. We've got tremendous venues. We've got the capabilities. We are well known around the world as being one of the best cities for meetings and events. And there has to be a concerted effort to certainly attract those events back or rebook them, those that we lost over the past couple of years. But similarly, making sure those events have the requisite number of delegates that are needed to be successful. Uh, There's a little hesitancy, to be sure, for people to want to travel for safety and other reasons. Sure, of course. And so now to try to build that back up again, that's going to require some incentives, some marketing, certainly some sales efforts on the part of Destination Vancouver and many others that are in that field. 
Yeah. So uh, the other part that I want to ask you about, Walt, and you use the word hesitancy, and you've already talked very briefly about labor issues. And a final question to you, as we attempt to turn our tourism industry around, uh, a lot of people, as you mentioned already, and we certainly know, have left the industry uh, because they needed to get to survive. Now, a lot of them, the hesitation part is where I'm coming here. A lot of people are still hesitating to return to the industry because of fear of yet another shutdown, another variant, another um, a complete readjustment required. So what's it going to take for the industry to get some of those desperately needed people to recommit and return? Well, in fact, that's a process that's underway now uh, with many industry sector associations together with government, individual businesses to certainly look at what the root problems are, why people have left, why they aren't returning, Part of the reason, to be sure, is that fear that things will shut down again. Yeah. But I, I, I know, too, that as an industry, we have a lot of competition from different business sectors. They, too, are short of staff. And so employers are pulling out all the stops. You know, they're trying to provide as much as possible the flexibility and hours that people can work. As a service industry, largely you need people there, but there certainly are lots of jobs within tourism where people can still work from home until they feel comfortable about the health and safety requirements or that they feel health and safety, health and and safe, I should say. Mm. But um, So there's some of that that uh, employers are doing to keep people uh, motivated, they've They've uh, extended hours or they've got flexible hours. They're offering good pay. They're offering training opportunities. Those are all things that certainly help to entice folks. But you also have to consider that that uh, one of the things that we need to do as an industry is to tell people it's more than just a job. Sure, there are entry-level jobs, and it's a great place to start if you're a sure. young person. But these are careers. Tourism offers long, stable careers, and has proven to be so up until the last couple of years, but that will likely continue going forward. You know, the the industry needs engineers, it needs architects, it needs uh, people who are accountants, lawyers. Uh, So many skilled positions are involved Mm -hmm. in the tourism sector. And let's face it, it's a fun sector to be in. You're welcoming people from all over the world, You're getting an education unlike really any other because you're meeting people from different parts of the world. It's um, you're, you're creating memories for people. You have a chance to show off your destination or your individual business. And it's also a sector that uh, spurs on entrepreneurs investing in different products and services. And there's more of that to come to be sure. We, the, the sky's the limit really for our province because we have so much to offer and we we need the kind of individuals that are looking at tourism as a long-term career and not merely a job on the way to another sector or business that's right Walt, you and I have known each other for a very long time. You and I have been talking on the radio for many, many years. And for the first time in quite a few years, I'm really sensing a a note of optimism in your voice. And it's wonderful to hear. It's about blinking time, don't you think? Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Sterling. Much appreciated, as always. Thanks for listening. 
Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.